I'm going to start recording now. Henry, welcome to Max Depth. I really appreciate you coming on. Happy to be here. Um, so I guess I'll go ahead by introducing myself. Uh, my name is Henry Scherbone. I'm a junior at Harvard pursuing a special concentration in ontology of autonomous systems, also termed OASIS, because um, I got to come up with the acronym. It's a sort of degree that I designed myself across five fields, which are robotics, computer science, philosophy, math, um, and organismic and evolutionary biology. I'm also doing a concurrent master's in computer science. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to talking today. Mm. Oasis. Yes. Oasis. Can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, so Oasis, so it's ontology of autonomous systems. Um, part of this is it's, it's meant to be vague. So I think if you hear the term and you're like, I don't know what that means, that's where I wanted you to be because I think it's, they actually tell you when you come up with a name for your sort of special degree that you, you don't want the first thing that you say to be explaining why the person is misunderstood. Like you don't want to lead with what you're not doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I tried to come up with something such that the, the person would ask me, what are you doing? Not, oh, are you doing this? Sure. Um, and so I think, I mean, for those who don't know, right, ontology is the study of being. Um, and the way I think that you can think about how I got to my degree or, or what I'm doing abstractly is if you sort of start with robotics, right? You have this goal of you want to create a system. Um, and when you want to create a system, what that means sort of very broadly is, is that you want to either, you want to create something that does something and you want to create a system that is in some way an approximation of something else. And that approximation can be very broad, like I want to move objects and other things move objects, or it can be very specific, like I want to create a sort of mechanism that does the exact same thing as the leg of a dog when it's running. Um, and if you think about the steps needed, and this is sort of how you pull in the five fields, you have to start with engineering because you need to create something. Um, and then after you do that, you, you're then going to go to computer science because you need some way of sort of formally controlling the thing you've created. And then you'll probably go to some kind of mathematics because you need a way of modeling and rigorously defining what you're doing. And this, is, this order isn't sort of rigid. Um, and at some point, hopefully you will have looked to biology because biology has a lot of really good examples of how mechanisms work. Um, and finally, you'll end up with a, some, set, some set of questions. And that set of questions might be, I've created the system to sort people sort of in court cases, is it fair? Uh, I've, you, get, you might sort of ask much broader ontological questions, like in, in what sense does my robotic insect sort of is an insect or, or does it have some sort, sort of being, what kind of agent is it, things of this nature. And, and you find the answer to these questions in philosophy and that's how you sort of pull in the five fields and get to the degree. Um, yeah. I like it. So, so how does, how does philosophy inform the five, the five fields? Yeah, so there's this sort of this, this idea of informing, I think is, is another way that I, I sort of pitch what I'm doing, right? So I think the elevator pitch is, I'm interested in how biology and philosophy sort of inform the technical work and how the technical work informs biology and philosophy. Um, Do you I think, think the current state of uh, technology and robotics are being properly informed by philosophy and nature and uh, biology? No, I think I, I, I think that some people are. I think the, the, my champion, my heroes are, right? I mean, I think that there's sort of a, a field that I do research in is sort of called like robophysics, right? Where you're taking, you're building robophysical models of biological organisms. Um, and so you can think of this as sort of two ways. So there's a, a guy at EPFL in Switzerland, Aki Ijspert, who wrote this really great sort of survey paper. And he says that there's sort of two ways you can think about the intersection of biology and robotics. The first is from an inspiration perspective. So that's sort of biology going into robotics. And you're saying there's sort of this mechanism or this like method of control and I wanna copy that. And this sort of very quickly becomes the, the biologists in the room, their eyes start glazing over because they don't really care, right? You're not telling them anything, they're telling you something as a roboticist. Sure. There's a second way, which is becoming more and more interesting, um, where you can build a robo-physical model that actually tells you something about the organism. And what I mean by that is that it can be very hard to test organisms, right? I mean, they, they sort of, they're organisms, they do what they want. 
and you can't ask them to vary what they're doing. Um, but if you build a good enough approximation of it, you can then study it across sort of a wide range of environments and parameter sets and blah, blah, blah. And then you can say something about what you think is going on in biology. And this is becoming a, a new field in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's still a young field, I should say. Um, and a lot of interesting work is being done. And so I think that that's a way in which, a very sort of specific academic way in which the technical work is, is giving back, so to speak. Um, that being said, I think the way in which it's giving back is up for both scientific and philosophical debate, right? I mean, I think people that work in philosophy of models might ask sort of what, how legitimate is the work that's being done there? I see the same parallel between biology and robotics uh, as I do between neuroscience and computer science and artificial intelligence. And I wonder if you see that same parallel. I, yeah, so I think that sometimes, so I think there can be a similar parallel. However, I think that people see the same parallel then get very excited and say far too much. And so I think a, a really good, my, my straw man in this area, I think is, is like if you read um, like Reward is Enough, a paper I think it was like last year from DeepMind, which was essentially saying that you can get to artificial general intelligence mm -hmm. just by having a reward function. I guess a, a, maybe a bit of a miscarriage, but I think that's sort of close. And th that's a way in which you might say, oh, look, like we've sort of, we have these neural models in computer science. We can then use that to say something about neuroscience. I think that the number of cases in which you can do that is exceedingly small. And I think that a lot of times people, computer scientists will do really great work and they'll have really fantastic computational results. And then for, I don't know what it is in computer scientists' mind that like drives them to try to say something about people. They do this really cool thing. Like they'll make a helicopter do a barrel roll and it's amazing and brilliant. And they're like, and what this means is that this is what's going on in your brain. And suddenly it's like, what are you talking about? I don't think you've said that. I don't think you have any basis for that. Um, so yeah. I think there can be a parallel. I think that one must be incredibly careful when they make that parallel. Mm. That's something I've learned, I guess, or just noticed from the, a lot of the people I've talked to who have all, all been really smart there. Me as like a 19 year old kid coming into this, uh, feeling a little, I guess a little bit arrogant maybe, or a little, uh, everyone's just very aware of how much they don't know. Yeah. Which is inspiring, honestly. Uh, and, and really cool to see that that's like a, like a, like an aura around science, at least in the people that I've talked to so far. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're talking to good people. Cause I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's a, an old passage in Leibniz that says, that has a, a really great, is sort of talking about the mind-body distinction and the importance of the mind. He has the importance of the brain sort of thing. It's this thing where it's like, if you imagine the brain as a grain mill, um, and so you, you, you can blow up the brain to the size of a grain mill so large in, in such a way that you could sort of walk around and explore all of the, the mechanisms and components. Um, what Lyman says is that you'd still, if you sort of could watch it to your heart's content, you would still have no idea how a thought is formed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for, for the neuroscientists listening, right, I mean, there was a, a news article last week that scientists watch a memory be formed real time sort of by, by imaging. Um, but I, I still think that if not directly, I think that the spirit of what Leibniz is trying to say is true in that and I think that what's become increasingly true, and I think this has been validated in the last two years in, in sort of neuro, neuro computer science stuff, right, with, with neural networks, is, is you don't actually know what's going on, right? I mean, there's a huge problem with reproducibility and, and interpretability in, in neuroscience and sort of neural networks because you end up with these black box models and you don't actually know why you're getting the output that you're getting. Um, and it's funny because it, this is sort of presented as a new problem when you read a lot of computer science literature. But it's like Leibniz was telling you that like hundreds of years ago, like, come on guys, we knew this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that, that kind of wariness is, is, is good and warranted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I've been trying to figure out like if, uh, if 
what people when people say um, consciousness is an emergent property, it's difficult to even talk about consciousness because it's like, what are we really talking about? And like, am I using my words correctly? And am I am I am I making am I saying words that I think I know what I mean when I'm actually like uh, when they're not representing what I actually mean? Um, but when people say like, yeah, when you have like a sufficiently complex system, consciousness will kind of like arise as an emergent property. Like, is that is that really what happens, or is that like, or do they use an emergent property as a term to describe the thing that they uh, don't really understand? And I just wonder. It's just been cool to see people kind of pushing back on that and sharing my same view. Um, and talk like what are we what are we really talking about um and like just built like will building these complex enough systems like if we build an exact replica of the brain will it will it also give rise to consciousness um like if we understand all the mechanisms of it will will be will we be able to recreate something identical to it um or will if we understand all the mechanisms will will we be able to like stimulate certain areas like one this is totally off topic but one my uh my future vision of the metaverse is something like our ability to stimulate like very specific neural pathways uh that correlate with like real life experiences so basically we'll be able to wear some type of helmet or some some type of device where we'll have like an atlas of all of the different experiences linked to their corresponding uh, neural pathways in the brain. And we'll be able to like stimulate those exact pathways on command to give rise to, to experiences, which I think is a cool idea, but I just, I wonder if it's like the same idea as Leibniz talking about like understanding if you have the whole structure and you know all the mechanisms, can you understand uh, like where a thought comes from? Oh, yeah. A lot of rambling, I'm sorry. And I got oh, no worries. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that there's something that is that I think just makes me inherently wary about. And I think that maybe this sort of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is like, I think that, that one must be very careful when claiming to know things about the brain. I mean, the brain is a very complex thing. And there's something, I mean, I, there's also a part of it, and maybe this is just a me thing. I, I think that if you really, really want to know how the brain works, it's sort of like really, really wanting to know how a magic trick is done. Like, I think I'm sort of comfortable with things just remaining magic. Like, I don't really need to know how falling in love works from a neurochemical perspective. Like, falling in love is really awesome. Take something away. Yeah, exactly. I mean, falling in love is like sort of really awesome. And I think that there's something ineffable about it. And I, I think that there's a part of me that sort of like from a romantic romanticism perspective that like, that would like to think that you actually can't describe love, even from a neurochemical perspective. But I think if there was a way in which you can, I still think that something would be lacking. Um, but I, I think that maybe this is just, I was sort of bearish on, on, on neuroscience or certain areas of, of neuroscience, like neuroscience things, um, but alas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder if it, I wonder if it would take something away. Like, I don't, I don't know if you can make this comparison or even how I would do it. But it's like we we use religion to describe all the like the gaps in our knowledge, all the things we didn't know. Like Thor was the cause of the lightning. Um, yeah. Like God was the reasons for creation. And as we like, and then Nietzsche made his like big claim: God is dead, which he said to said with regret or or like a sense of holy shit, guys, God is dead. Like, the, like we might have a problem on our hands now. We have the task of creating our own our own meaning, which is uh, something that I don't know if we've really been tasked tasked with before. So I wonder if like, as we under, like, cause I would consider myself pretty materialist um, and, and I have to create meaning for myself, given that like, I take the stance that like, all right, maybe the world is inherently meaningless, but I have as a consciousness, I have the power to endow with meaning. And that's, that's almost like my responsibility. Um, so I wonder with like, as we're, as we're learning more and more, like if we were to, uh, un fully understand like the chemical composition of love, um, if it would still be the same or if it would, 
if there would be like a cycle of it not being the same of us being jaded like oh it's just a chemical reaction and then kind of like rediscovering uh, rediscovering that there like really is something more that like all the chemical parts like you can say what they add up to but you can't like the thing that they add up to isn't what you feel yeah and i, I think so i will touch on I, the you mentioned sort of nietzsche's madman which is one of my favorite philosophical sort of thought experimenty things um I, I will say that the thing i'm about to say is riffing off an article my dad wrote for 316 am it's called looney tunes um on nietzsche but i mean the important thing to remember i think about nietzsche's madman is that nietzsche writes that when the madman came to tell the people that god was dead they already knew um and the, the best sort of analogy or device for thinking about this actually i think is which is something that i didn't come up with um is, is you can think about it like wily e. coyote right i mean when the people already knew that god was dead they're like wily e. coyote when he runs off a cliff and there's a moment where he's suspended or he's still running suspended but he's on thin air and then he sort of looks at the camera and then looks down and then he falls, right? And so you can think about the, the, the state that the, the people were in when, before the madman came is they were suspended, right? They had no ground for being. Um, and then when the madman tells them they look down and they fall. And this is sort of sad, right? Or this is worrying because you're falling because you have no ground. But there is a, there is a sort of, slightly positive sense that you can read in this and that you're going to fall, but you're hopefully eventually going to hit something. And, and the thing that you hit is going to be your new ground for, for being. Um, and I think in the, in the thing that you were just talking about, right. If you imagine it sort of, you're like sort of taking something away and then you get something back and take something away. When you you're like, you're just falling off a lot of cliffs and you're going to fall to the next cliff eventually. And, and you're going to have to define that new ground for being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, People, um, so people have like a model of the world in their head, something like that. Because really, what do I mean when I say that? You could, you could definitely. We could have a whole another conversation about like really, like is the is the mind is the mind a model? But it's like say you have like a hierarchy of belief, and people um, get really triggered or like personally offended when people become increasingly hostile when you attack deep or like. Uh, increasingly fundamental aspects of their hierarchy of belief yeah. so like when you go when you go down and hit that cliff it's like i get i guess you want to be continually falling off that cliff because like maybe maybe you're never on the right cliff i don't know if there is a right cliff like a, a, a correct way but like you're the, i'm get i'm i would think in my head like the more cliffs you fall off of the better like the um but I just wonder if there's a, if, if you can go too far, like um, if, if it's ever, like if you can ever get to a cliff that's like so low that you're like not really interacting with anyone else, or if you, yeah. if you've, you've fallen off so many cliffs, you're so far below everyone, even if the lowest, even if the cliff you're on is, is true, the other people are all above them and you can't really like operate on in a meaningful, useful level with them. Yeah. Well, and there's a sort of, I mean, Sorry, you're right. There's, I mean, there's the old sort of indie. Who wrote it? Is it Kipling? There's someone where he's talking to a someone. I, I think it's like a, I think it's an Indian thing, and it's like the world rests on the back of a giant tortoise. Thing. What is it? Tortoise, turtle. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's on the back of an elephant, and then the elephant's on the back of a turtle. There we go. And then he says, well, and it's like, oh, it's turtles all the way down. And so one wonders if it's cliffs all the way down. Mm -hmm. um, we'd like to think that, maybe that there's actually just the ground at some point. Um, but there is, there is a, maybe a fear that if you're sort of, and part of the reason for hostility is, is if you're always just going to be falling to the next turtle, um, this is sort of worrisome in a way, in that you're never going to get to the bottom turtle. Mm-hmm. Or, or even like if um, if there is a bottom turtle, like um, I think like the, a modern, I a modern conception of God could be um, like 
that we're the fact that we're living in a simulation. Um, but even that, it's like uh, you have the same problem of who created God, God um, as who who created the original simulation. Like if because like it would just be it would be just as easy to say we're living in a simulation as uh, the people that the simulation that created us was also it's, a simulation and then the simulations all the way it's down. like how how far do you deep and is pursuing that line of thought uh meaningful i guess yeah and so and I, I think that someone like jl austin or, or sort of people that i i like to read would sort of balk at those kinds of questions i think they would just sort of be like what are you talking about right because i mean i think it's funny i think a lot of people talk about the skepticism question or the simulation questions if it's like really new but it's i mean it's essentially just philosophical skepticism mm -hmm. which we have been talking about for a really long time right i mean it, it, it's sort of a repackaging of cartesian skepticism you just say so simulation instead of dream mm -hmm. um and i think it's i mean i think austin does a really good job of of deflating skepticism it's just sort of like we we know how to we know how to we know that we can know things we act like we know things all the time what what more do you want, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for people that really, I mean, for me, I think like Nick Bodstrom and stuff who really worry about simulation, or I think, um, oh, what's his name, who just wrote Reality Plus in Australia. Um, I think that there there's a, a a lot of reasons that you might think that that it isn't a big a big worry because you're going to just sort of get to a reductio and then you don't need to worry about it anymore. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what one theme I've been exploring on this podcast has been the uh has been the comparison or parallel or just trying to dissect the the relationship between i guess truth and practicality and it's like okay if we were living in a simulation or if if we were living in uh or if string theory properly described the reality around us and it was grounded in 11 dimensions and there was something like worlds all around us that we can't really interact with or the uh, invisible teacup orbiting Jupiter problem. Like if there's an invisible teacup orbiting Jupiter, like we wouldn't know, but maybe it's true. So it's like in pursuing truth, how do you balance between proof, truth and things that have utility and are, are useful to us and can in help better inform our actions? Like, I guess this, the, the claim I'm staking through this podcast is if I can better understand the world, then I can better act in it. But is better understanding the uh, is a better understanding of the world a uh, a striving towards truth or a striving towards the proper way to act? Yeah. Um, so I think the, the two things that that makes me think of, I mean, the first is, I think for people who think a lot about truth, which I, I, I points in my life, I suppose I have been one. I, written many pages on the topic. I think, I think I'm a big fan of sort of deflationary views of truth, which is, is just trying to sort of pare it down as much as possible. I think I, as I, the philosopher I just mentioned, J.L. Austin has a great paper called Truth, um, in which, I mean, he actually says sort of when you're talking about truth, you're not really talking about truth qua true. You're actually talking about accuracy and um, Sort of like predictive value. I mean, like there's sort of there's a, a family of terms that you're actually concerned with when you're talking about the truth of something. And I think that your 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 question about utility, I think, would fall into that model sort of nicely. Um, the other thing I think is is yeah, the question of sort of the 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 truth of a model versus like its utility is really nice, and I think that a nice place that that comes up is, I mean, I think this is why it's sort of worthwhile for people to read Kant, right? When you read the first critique, he's giving you this huge system, which many people have shown are, is wrong for many reasons. Um, and he sort of starts with like the a priori intuitions of space and time, right? And, and then he, and he says sort of, you can't have space without, or you can't, you have to have space because you can't imagine anything without space. And you sort of you have, have to, to have presumptions. Yeah, yeah. So you have to have this a priori intuition, and from there you sort of you you have your intuitions, and they turn into concepts. And people sort of attack Kant for two reasons. One, I mean, the way that this quickly falls apart is you have sort of non you have things like Riemannian geometry and non-Euclidean geometries, which sort of break apart his claims about various sort of spatial properties. 
And the other thing that falls apart is you have sort of general relativity, which breaks apart time as a sort of continuous thing. But there, there's something about the Kantian framework, which is really nice in that he's sort of describing what we experience every day, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I totally accept that general relativity is a thing and it like affects the world in a way, but it doesn't really affect my daily life, right? Like to, to go out and experience and sort of cognize the world, I don't really need to have an understanding of special or general relativity. I don't really need to have a, a sort of concept of non-Euclidean geometry, right? Like if I know that the shortest point between two two lines, two, two, the shortest sort of between two lines is a straight line, like that'll get me most places. Um, and so there, there is this power, in, and I think what drives me to study philosophy and why I think people should study philosophy is that and I think why it sort of bugs when people are too quick to just like destroy old theories because of modern scientific results is that what these philosophers are often doing is they're giving you a way to think about the world in the way that you naturally think about it. Mm -hmm. And this is useful. And I, and I don't think it's, it's useful in that it's more correct or truer mm -hmm. than like correct predictive scientific theories, but it is useful or it's interesting mm -hmm. that it is sort of applicable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, get, I think I've been increasingly soothed by um, just talking to people and that idea in itself, like uh, the fact that general relativity doesn't really ch uh, change or like affect my daily life so much. Like for a while, I was like really stressed out by the fact that like quantum mechanics, quantum mechanics was so weird or, or when I first under, uh, like was thinking about string theory and I was like, yeah, like the very base level is, is so bizarre. Like I, I was thinking about it being uh, like our entire perceptions of the world, how we interact with reality, like how I interact with myself was predicated on a foundation that was like really unstable and, and maybe, or just like, or, or we're thinking about it incorrect, but it's like, okay, well, if it was so incorrect, then we wouldn't like be able to operate as well as we do. And so yeah. I think I was kind of like putting a problem where it like didn't really need to be. And like, and like maybe quantum mechanics, like is, is true. Um, and, and it's like really, and like the uh, foundational layer, like is, that we've built everything upon is like, is really strange and doesn't like match all the way up, but like the level we're operating on uh, it, like it's sufficient for. Yeah. I, mean, I think I was, sorry, I was in an ethics seminar and the professor was like, there's a sort of funny phenomenon that really good ethics people when they turn like 60 suddenly become obsessed with like the free will problem in quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. um, which I think has been shown like pretty, which I think as, sort of, as you just said, has been shown to not really be a worry, but it is something that's funny. I think when people discover quantum mechanics, there's me like, oh, well, it's sort of just random and, and there's no free will and, and nothing you do matters. And it's like, mm -hmm. you sort of seem to think that things mattered the 10 seconds before you found out what quantum mechanics was. That's why I hate even discussing the free will problem because it's yeah. like, it has no utility. Our yeah. entire system of laws, how we interact with each other. And if you treat some like one, like they don't have free will, good luck. Yeah. Cause they won't like that very much. Exactly. Yeah. You said something before, and it made me think of the first lines uh, of the Tao Te Ching, which is the, is like the primary document in, in Taoism, um, mm -hmm. like a major Eastern religion. And it, and, and it's something like my interpretation of it is the eternal Tao, which, it, and the Tao is like the, I think of it as like the way of the unit, like the underlying current of what reality is like, um, like this, this thing that we like, that we're trying to live in accordance with, but it's really difficult because it's hard to understand. The first words are the eternal Tao cannot be spoken. Um, which I, wa I wonder if we can make uh, a leap from that line to analytic philosophy and, and a discussion about language and whether it's uh, sufficiently describing the world, if it, if it ever can be, how other, other people that you've read uh, think about the relationship between language and uh, its ability to describe the world or like be useful to us. Yeah, so I, mean, I think the, the first thing is, is the distinction of like sort of analytic continental philosophies is one that is useful to a point. Um, but I think people have done a good job of explaining why, why the distinction is silly. Um, I think for those who care, 
William William Blattner, who's actually at Georgetown, has a really great paper on why why the distinction isn't isn't great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the early origins of analytic philosophy are, are this sort of blurring between mathematics and philosophy, and then you sort of sort of right that sort of Frege, and then you go on to people like Bertrand Russell, and then to Wittgenstein, um, who sort of then you get from analytic philosophy to sort of what I would call like ordinary language philosophy. Um, which I think is getting at this question of sort of what what you can talk about, what you can speak about, what you can't. Um, and it's funny, the, the, the lines that you just talked about from the Dalai Jing sort of remind me of the, like one of the, the final proposition of Wittgenstein's Tractatus, Proposition 7, which is like, where of one cannot speak, there of one must be silent. Um, yeah, it's also the same idea as Descartes. Like, I, I, think, I think I can say, uh, say this right. It's like um, your, your will... Out, uh, outperforming your intellect or your will, your will overextending your intellect. Like you shouldn't speak about things that you don't like really know or understand. Yeah. And, and I, I think that there is, I mean, so there's a lot of this, I think ties back to a sort of Kantian idea of like the phenomenal and the noumenal. And you shouldn't talk about the noumenal because you can't, you can't talk about the noumenal. That's why it's noumenal. Um, there's also sort of, I mean, it's funny, there's also sort of these ideas in, in Heidegger when he talks about being, and there's, there's a lot of very smart people who are sort of get really into this idea that there's certain aspects of being that are sort of ineffable. Um, and I think that this is sort of, there's something nice about this, but there's also something in which if it's really ineffable, why are you talking about it? Because you shouldn't be able to. And there's also something where you have to be careful what you're sort of saying is ineffable. Because if you just think that nothing can be talked about and everything is sort of out there, then it's just like, well, we're done. I guess we should sort of pack up Wrap and go up. home. Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of the, the ordinary language project has, has done really well, right? I mean, the analytic philosophy project has done really well in terms of, I mean, you have so many great sort of systems and stuff in, ter- in place that, that, describe what's going on. And I think what Wittgenstein was trying to do with it, and I, I say this with so much, like this is not, should not be taken with, with so many grains of salt. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what the Proposition 7 is leading you to is that, I mean, the Tractatus can be thought of as like a set of logical rules for language in the world. And what he's saying is like, you can't have a complete system. And there's a thought like Juliet Floyd at, at um, BU, maybe BC, um, has this idea that that notion in sort of language was inspired by like Turing's impossibility results. Um, and so it's like sort of this, this idea, and, that, and that's actually a, a nice sort of place in which so that you have this, the technical goes to the philosophical. So there's a sort of technical um, impossibility result from, from Turing, and then that goes to, this sort of inspires Wittgenstein to a sort of impossibility result in sort of the completion, complete understanding of, of language. And I think what people then do is take it one step too far and say, oh, well, Wittgenstein just says you, you can never say anything about anything. And he's just this sort of skeptic, which I don't think is true. I mean, I think Wittgenstein thinks you can say a lot of things about a lot of things. There's just, a, there's certain things that you have to be careful about when you're doing that. Um, also, let me quickly close the blind. My face is being obscured. Nice. I like it. One idea, um, I don't know if it's really an idea, just an interesting observation was, uh, at, I think towards the end of Kierkegaard's short life, um, he uh, like came back to the idea of God as, as kind of like a... Um, Okay, like, I think, I don't know if you can make a, a similar comparison to the, like, understanding all the neuroscience and it not being the same thing as love. He's like, yeah, like, you can't attack or you can't, like, think about God, like, analytically or logically. Yeah. Um, I mean, this so, is sort of the Kierkegaardian idea of faith, right? I mean, you yeah, sort of have, have faith. Yeah, you sort of have faith. You either, you either have faith or you don't. You can't sort of, you can't analytically investigate faith. And you just sort of have to have it. Um, but once you have it, you can do a lot of things, which is really great. Um, and yeah, so I mean, sort of his night of faith is you're just, you're just going on. Um, 
And there's something about that that really bothers people, I suppose. What um, needing to take the leap of faith? Yeah, I mean, right. I, mean, it's, it's, I think there's a, a push. And I think that, I mean, this is what I think drives a lot of modern, I mean, this is what has always driven science. And I think what drives this sort of, this intense interest and want, I think it's why people sort of make sometimes inappropriate leaps from sort of results in, in computer science to results in, in neuroscience or something like that. It, it, we really want to understand what's going on all the time about everything. Sure. Yeah, that makes us feel safe. Yeah. It, it seems seem like we know the room we're in when really we don't. Exactly. Yeah. We sort of, we want to know. And I think that this is what can make people sort of upset about Kierkegaard and that he's like, he's saying, you, just, you gotta, you gotta take the leap, man. Um, but there's also something really wonderful about that. And that you just have to have faith. And that's, so there's something sort of beautiful about that. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, I, I don't know if, how much more I can, more I can say. Um, um, so it's like the world, we don't know 100% the world around us, obviously. There's way too much for us to try to process, too many, too many anomalies for us. And so it's like we're, we're super limited in the scope of what we're focused on. We're, uh, our attention is determined, I guess, by our values and what like we're oriented towards. So it's, just, it's just a lot. Um, and so I feel like even like going out into the world is like a leap of faith or like maybe for, I guess, uh, an agoraphobic person would be, would really relate to this. Like it's a huge leap of faith to even go into the world because there's anomalies and things you don't understand lurking behind, behind, beyond every corner. And that's just like something you need to accept. Like that leap of faith, like to live is like to leap, to take a leap of faith. Yeah. So I'm, I think that there's, you're sort of, you're, 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 you're approaching or broaching a parallel between that and then sort of problems of epistemology, right? So, I mean, like, if you sort of continue the train of, of ordinary language philosophy stuff, and you'll eventually get to, like, W.V. Quine, who was a, a professor here at Harvard for a very long time. Um, I think if, if anyone reads sort of any paper as a result of listening to this, they should read Posits and Reality, which was the sort of former introduction to a book by Quine called Word and Object. But I mean, Quine sort of says what you just said, right? Which is, I mean, we're bombarded with, with all kinds of, of sensory information. Um, and we also, we sort of have to take it that we're not going to know for sure things about the world. Mm -hmm. But what you're doing, Quine says, is that, is that you're, you're making posits about your reality based on the sense data. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like, um, if, like, if you're like walking down the street, like you can't really see like what's, what's going on in the alley or like what's over far to the left of you, but it's like, all right, like as long, as long as I can kind of like imagine something like what it is, then I don't really have to worry about it. Yeah. And, and, and sort of quite says we also do this in science, right? And so you're sort of, you're making a positive and then you're going to build a theory around that. And then from that theory, you're going to build what he calls sort of a superstructure. And the important thing is that you can go back and change the posit, or you can even get rid of it, and you can retain the superstructure. Hmm. And that's both enough and really important, right? So, I mean, and so, and, and why we want to get rid of it is because you can't maybe epistemically really know the posit, right? We're, it's a posit after all. We can't yeah. prove it rigorously. Uh -huh. But we can still build a superstructure and then totally use it. And I think this goes back to your sort of some notion of truth versus utility versus use is you don't actually care about the truth of the positive at the end of the day. You care that you sort of build a workable theory and build a, a workable superstructure and then you can sort of do all kinds of cool things. Um, and you can then sort of, you're making a positive. You can forget about the initial thing, um, which bothers some people, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess I understand why it bothers someone for the same reason that I was so bothered by the fact that like everything we're doing was built upon this strange foundation of quantum mechanics that we don't, that we don't really understand. Like uh, if everything's branching off from the posit and the posit was wrong, then is like, because of that is everything that we built off of it incorrect. But it seems like not like maybe like not necessarily like we can get to something right based on something that was wrong. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, I mean, there's this sort of, there is this sort of, I mean, people want their, I think, like epistemic teddy bear to, to, to reach for in the night in that you, you want to hold on to something and, and know it. 
Um, which I think, I mean, which is why, what drives people to religion. I, like, I think, and I think why religion can be really good is because it can be your epistemic teddy bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, when people sort of point out that science to some degree can't, that is really unsettling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's like almost been, I feel like if I hadn't done so much like research, you could call it like on, on my own or just like reading in general is like through, through the school system, it's like, it makes it seem like science can provide all the answers when so many like staunch materialists, I guess uh, you can see like a tra- I've, I've noticed like just by studying a lot of people's lives, they kind of make a transition to, to religion, like more towards the end of their life. I think like as they mature and realize that, hey, like science is really good for describing like a lot but maybe, maybe uh, like we need something else. Yeah. And, and, I, and, and I that's think, the thing that we've had forever. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that, right? Like that, like sort of an impossibility result does not imply that the whole system is defunct, right? I mean, I think there's a, oh, I don't know what's happening outside. Um, <laughs> but there's this tendency that when people first sort of read Gödel's impossibility theorem, they're just like, well, nothing can be proven in math ever. Uh-huh. It's like, no, it's like, it's like, that's not what you should be getting out of it. Um, and so I think that there's a, a similar phenomenon when people sort of are like, like, sort of hear a skeptical argument and they're just like, well, I just can never know anything ever. Or the, the sort of quantum, it's like, I just can't have free will. It's like, no, that's sort of not the point. And you're sort of, mm-hmm. you're, you're talking in the wrong there's sort of like the everyday and the philosophical and, and you're conflating the two, right? I mean, there's sure. Barry, Barry Stroud who's a philosopher. Barry has this idea, this, this distinction, which I think is really useful. There's the philosophical and there's the everyday. And there's worries that we have in the philosophical, which are not worries that we have in the everyday. Uh-huh. And most of the thing that people worry about when they sort of freak out about these things should be in the philosophical, but they are trying to bring them into the everyday where they don't belong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if people sort of remember this distinction, you're, you're a lot happier most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been, I wasn't raised religious at all. Like I had no formal religion. I've never even been in a church during an active, like an, an active sermon or so. I don't even know what to call it. Um, but I've recently, just recently been kind of diving into the first stories in Genesis and like reading how, how cool or uh, informative some of the first stories can be. And there's, there's one idea, and I'm not going to do it justice, but it's, it's in the first story when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And, uh, and the things that give them awareness, like full, full consciousness, uh, or like what we would consider like modern human consciousness, is, is the snake and the apple. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, why is it the snake and the apple? And I got a lot of these ideas from Jordan Peterson, who did like a whole lecture series on the biblical stories in 2017. Um, And it's like, why is it the snake and the apple? And then it's like this idea that like 60 million years ago, we were we were monkeys living in trees being preyed upon by predatory snakes. So our eyesight developed in uh, in reaction to making sure we could see snakes really well and also in reaction to being able to discern uh, which berries were poisonous and which berries were healthy. And it's like, yeah, people talk of like a, um, I went, I met a girl here and went to a, it was like a biblical, like a study session with her and like two other college students that were like kind of teaching her. And they were talking about like that lesson that the day's lesson that I dropped in on was, um, was like understanding that the Bible is like, is all is parables. And I was trying, and I was trying to see what they thought. It's like, yeah, like they're parables. Like they're supposed to be lessons, like almost like meta stories. Like they don't necessarily have to be true in themselves to show you some sort of truth. It's like, they're also, also like by, by just having that view, we also might be missing something about, uh, like about how like truly deep they are. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's, good parallels to be drawn in parables um i think i mean i think something that that draws me to wittgenstein is that he sort of speaks in these sort of fun parallel story things um which are really similar to things like koans in in japanese and buddhism which are sort of similar to like old jewish jokes like sort of jokes taken as a thing right and and this shows up in in the bible sort of new testament as well um 
And yeah, I, mean, I think there's a, the value of thinking philosophically is you can sort of pull out what's going on without just taking them at their face value. Um, and I, I think that, that a lot can, can come from that. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to talk about how more about how you think, um, like, I guess the current state of robotics and how, and more about how it's like, it is properly being informed by nature or mm-hmm. um, if like, just talk to me more about the current state of computer science and robotics, like where, what, what you think we're doing really well, what you think we've obtained, uh, what, what you think we've actually created, what do you think like we're on, maybe on track to uh, create, like, yeah, I guess like the um, overall assessment of the field. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how much to ask for. I, I don't know how qualified I am to assess, but I'll, I'll sure. give it a, I'll give a shot. You're certainly more qualified than me, so that's all that um, counts. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a very interesting time to be alive in in robotics, and that there's, I mean, I think the the fun thing about robotics is that it's not a definite field, and that I think a lot of people take themselves to be doing robotics from vastly different I mean, things from like all the way from sort of material science to computer science, to mechanical engineering, um, to like pure mathematics almost. Um, and I think a good example of this is, is, is if you sort of pose a simple problem, like I want to pick up a block, um, robotics offers you thousands of solutions to this. And, and, and this is shown in the literature, right? I mean. There are some people who go, well, people can pick up blocks. Let's try to make a fully articulated hand and people do this. Um, people might say, oh, let's make a robot to do it. And we're just going to design some optimal rigid solution that looks like two fingers. There are people that use sort of quote unquote informal techniques. And it's like, well, we can actually design a gripper out of paper. Or if you take a cut a slit in a piece of paper and you pull it, um, if the paper is stretchy, you're actually going to get a, a grasping motion. There are people that might say, oh, well, we can just sort of build a robot swarm like ants because they can move blocks. And so we'll do it collectively. People might say, oh, well, if you want it to be like a robot hand, then sort of the skin is compliant. So you actually need soft robotics to do this. Um, and you can see where you can imagine sort of 37 other papers mm-hmm. on lifting, lifting and manipulating blocks that all seem completely different. Um, and so there is something where I think that the current state of robotics is one of great variety, which is really exciting. Um, and I think that the next step, so to speak, is, is people are starting to do sort of a, a sort of meta robotics or a survey of the field, which is like, this is how you combine the techniques. And this is also why you would want to use one technique over the other, which I think is, is something that industry does for academia. This is also something I think that academics are starting to have to think about. Um, in computer science, I think what that question makes me think about is I went to a really interesting talk by the sort of faculty or director of the um, IACS at Harvard, and he was talking about sort of genetic algorithms and reinforcement learning and the things that people normally talk about at computing talks. Sure. And he sort of left with this really interesting thing, which is that computing needs to change. And the reason that computing needs to change is because of the sort of classic problem that is being discussed, which is that machine learning is massively environmentally impactful because you use massive amounts of electricity. Um, and we've, because and we, because we've become obsessed and gotten to this point of the optimal solutions in computer science, right? I mean, when you run a machine learning model, you want the optimal solution. You want your 17 decimal places, et cetera, et cetera. And the sort of three areas, which I'm not going to be able to remember all three, I think, uh, that he sort of says the next step is to, is to figure out sort of the new wave of computing and sort of this idea of approximate computing and sort of in some ways nature inspired computing, but of, of figuring out new ways to do computing that are actually the right fit, right? So I mean, I think the idea of approximate computing is there's a lot of situations in which you don't need a hyper precise result. Um, and in which you can sort of compute efficiently, you can compute at scale, you can do all of these things that I think are really and, then, and I think on the opposite end, which is something that's becoming cooler and cooler in robotics, is this idea of embodied intelligence. So you don't need super resolute control. You can just embody certain mechanical properties, certain like components of intelligence in the mechanical properties of things such that you don't need computing resources anymore. So, I mean, this has become a little rambly, but I, I think that... Wait, yeah, sorry, I got lost at the very end, unless you were going to make, or if you wanted to continue, just like that last idea, embodied intelligence. 
Yeah, so I think the idea of embodied intelligence is, is ways that you can cut computing out of the equation to solve problems effectively. Um, and I, an idea of this is that when we run, right, like evolutionarily, our tendons and our muscles and our bones connect together in a way such that we can deal with pills. Mm -hmm. This isn't a feature of our brains, right? This is a feature of the mechanical construction of our legs. Um, this is seen even more in like sort of insects and, and octopuses and, and things like that, where their limbs are able to do things because of the way their limbs are built, not because uh -huh. of their brains. Uh -huh. This is like sort of the, the key idea of embodied intelligence, which I think is going to become a huge factor in the future because it's a way of saving thinking, which is good, but more importantly, sort of from an environmental perspective, it's a way of saving like computational energy. Mm -hmm. If you can do things from an embodied intelligence perspective, if you can do things from an approximate computing perspective, you're like, you're running less iterations of an algorithm. And in doing that, you're going to save massive amounts of electricity and energy and time. And this is important. Mm -hmm. It's funny when you said uh, you'll, you'll save yourself from having to think I, when you said that I thought it'll like, and then you said your other example, I thought of like them as the same thing, like thinking as just a computational uh, process. Yeah. So I, mean, I think it's, it's thinking as a computational process and also thinking as like, when you're designing, you can cut out a lot of problems if you just design things mechanically well. Um, I think an example of this is like, you don't see wheels in nature. Uh, this, the way we get around this as humans is we just design smooth roads and then put wheels on them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why are you so interested in um, small, small robotics? Is it, uh, if, you, if you are, not nanorobots. Um, yeah, I think- Insect I, I, scale robotics. I think it's because I, I think that insects are really cool. Um, and I say that sort of intentionally in a sort of childish way. I mean, I think uh -huh. that, I think that insects are amazing, right? I mean, like sort of the things that ants are capable of doing, the fact that bees can like communicate and vote on things in, in this way and, and they can do sort of amazing things like many sort of species of bees when they need a new queen sort of know to like, feed a certain number of larvae a special kind of honey such that they become queens. I mean, the, the amount of intelligence that is found in, and capability that is found in insects is, is inspiring. Um, in a way that I think I'm actually not inspired by when I see people do things, right? I mean, uh -huh. you watch ant colonies and you're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so there's uh -huh. something that just from an inspirational perspective, you want to be able to understand that and replicate that and leverage that in our designing of robotics. Um, and I think that insect scale robots are the way to do it. Hmm. So what, uh, what are the purposes or what projects do you have going on relating to insect scale robots? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's a very young field, which is exciting as a young person doing research. Um, yeah, totally. I think a lot of, a lot of my work focuses on, different control strategies for locomoting over various kinds of features and terrain. And what that really means is that if you have insect scale robots, you want to have them explore environments. And there's a lot of different ways that one might be able to do that. And so I sort of look at various technical aspects of that. Mm -hmm. And are you um, in figuring out like the best way to move over like a given landscape? Are you trying to let them like provide them with, I guess, like topological data and them and you trying to like let them figure it out for themselves um how like what uh because i know that like i i only know like the words relating to computer science like yeah uh, like i uh, like uh um supervised learning unsupervised learning like um, so what I, techniques are you using and in, in where i usually come at it from a biological perspective in that i'm interested in insects sort of have this quote-unquote open loop control to traverse so they're not sort of updating what they're doing based on perception. Um, so I'm sort of interested in how you can apply that to robotics. They're I'm not also, updating what they're doing based on perception? Yeah. Like they're, they're sort of just, uh, there's an evolutionarily optimal control strategy for how to locomote over certain environments. And you can do this in some situations in an open loop way. And I think that this is really interesting. Um, again, back to this sort of idea of cutting out computing resources. Another sort of 
thing that I'm interested in is, yeah, how you, how you can sort of apply various different strategies. And so something that some people in my lab work on is how you can design different limbs for insect scale robots such that it can traverse over features. This is back to the idea of embodied intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that a lot of the kind of work that I do or, or the, the lab does more generally is, is not in the machine learning realm. It's not in the like, I just want an optimal solution. It's in an understanding and leveraging what we know from nature to, to get to a better solution. Mm -hmm. Do you see nature as like evolution being, um, or I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I used to have a thought that like what we have right now, everything's perfect. Like, because all the non-perfect things were got taken care of by evolution. So it's like, how do you figure out what we have now is like really useful as a, as a byproduct of evolution and what kind of just like has stuck around and will be, um, like selected against. Yeah. So I mean, it's important to think I mean, there's a, I, I, there's a good lesson, I guess it was taught to me about evolution, right? Which is, I mean, it's important to remember that, that nature isn't an engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is you can, if you ask a, a, a group of engineers to build a bridge, they're going to sort of design a bridge and they're going to pick the best materials and the sort of, they're going to optimize for various kinds of parameters. Um, and then they're going to select materials based on this optimization. If you ask nature to build a bridge, right? Like nature's going to work with the like decrepit shed that's next to the river that you wanted to build a bridge over. Cause it's just working with the materials that it has, that it's always had. And so you're going to get a bridge that works. Um, but the only things that nature has to work with is the materials that are already there. Um, mm -hmm. And so there is a way in which viewing nature as optimal is incorrect. Um, because nature is not optimal. It's, or it's optimal with a, a large number of constraints. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, I was thinking about that today, actually, that sort of how you approach the idea of looking at nature's design versus the way that nature designs things, um, I think is, is a very interesting dichotomy. Um, but yeah, this is, I mean, this is something that I will try to tackle in my senior thesis, um, but I haven't thought too much about it yet the the distinction between like nature as a system and 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 what nature creates or yeah so the way in which sort of we can think about looking at nature's designs um and then sort of as, as inspiration or, or to do something with them and then the way we can also think about how nature actually does the designing because mm -hmm. the way in which the way that nature does the designing so like the inspiration for genetic algorithms is really inefficient in that you kill a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and if you're fine with that, sort of if you think about that from a computer science perspective, if you're fine with that, then genetic algorithms are great. Um, and if you want to work over large timescales or large populations, um, but there's also a way in which if you're trying to save a lot of resources, maybe genetic algorithms aren't the best because you don't want to have to simulate n number of generations where n can approach a very large number. Hmm. Yeah. I guess I never even thought to thought to think that you didn't have to kill a large, a large number of things. Um, like, I guess one thing, like when I, when I have like existential dread about like wanting to get certain things done in my life or like wanting to achieve certain goals. And then I, I can kind of reflect and be like, Hey, like every, all this complexity that I'm trying to understand, like all this, all, everything around me was, is X number of billion years in the making. Like it took a ridiculously long time. Like, so all, all those people like all died to get here. It was like a crazy long process, which is like reassuring, reassuring for me. Cause it's like, I, I'm, it situates me as just like one piece in like an, an ongoing tide of just like incremental, incremental progress. But I never, uh, it's just a new perspective to think like, yeah, maybe you don't, there's another way to do it besides um, killing all those things. I never even considered that before. I think also, are we, I think we were out of time. Yeah, we're perfect. Yeah, um, yeah per perfect indeed. But I really enjoyed it. Indeed, yeah. I guess, I, are there any any final closing remarks? I, I think I think we can end on the on the, a new perspective of thinking about evolution. I think that's a, a, good, a good note to end on. I think so too. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it too. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I think I learned a lot. I have a lot of, uh, I'm looking into JL Austin Truth, William Blattner, anal uh, analytic philosophy, who's at Georgetown. Maybe if he's still here, maybe I can talk to him and posits of reality. Posits and reality. <laughs>
yeah. posits and reality. And feel free to email me with any any more questions. But. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. And you too. Um, just sorry, just as a closing note, I was wondering maybe uh, if I could if I'm going to post this maybe sometime in like a week. If there's any anything you could do um, to like share with your network, either like on LinkedIn or sure. or however you put it out, like would put it out to people, like that would be much appreciated because yeah. you know I want. I think this conversation is worthwhile and that people, if shared with the right people, they would appreciate it. And For sure, it. yeah. I'll do the like repost LinkedIn thing. Sweet. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate it again. Have a good one. That's nice good. See you, Max. Nice meeting Bye. you.